Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And may I also say happy Valentine's Day Eve. Why, thank you. You're welcome. Are you going to get me anything? Um, I'm going to give you a, a podcast straight from the heart. Oh. Yeah. Well, we better get started then. Yeah. Uh, and today we're going to talk about flowers because it is the typical Valentine's Day gift from one beloved to another. <laughs> Or just to a friend. My dad sometimes will send me flowers on Valentine's Day, which is always a kind gesture. Mm -hmm. Um, But Valentine's Day also reminds me of high school because I don't know how your school worked, Caroline, but at mine, it was a really big deal. And it was a big deal that made me, probably unnecessarily so, but it made me really uncomfortable because there was this competitive edge to... Valentine's Day, because the whole week or two beforehand, kids would go around, whatever kind of like class officers would go around, and they would sell carnations for a dollar that you could give to other classmates. So obviously, all the little high school sweethearts would give each other carnations, and you would either get them in white for friendship pink for love, and red for passion. Whoa, in high school? Yeah, and so you always Oof. kept your fingers crossed that your crush was going to give you a red one, that there would be a random red rose. or carna- scene. Yeah, a random carnation uh, sitting in your locker. The most popular kids would have collected just a bundle of carnations by the end of the day. Sounds greedy. So... Yeah, I, I, I really those that kind, that kind of obvious <laughs> uh, competition where you can count up your number of friends <laughs> and lovers always really put me on edge. So that's what I associate Valentine's Day <laughs> with: cheap carnations and high school angst. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I associate it with buying a new shirt with a heart on it every year, and wearing it to school. Do you wear Valentine's themed clothes? Not anymore. <gasps> But no, we um in I, well no I'm sorry that was middle school in middle school we had we had dances, and so I would always buy like a a, a heart themed t shirt because mm-hmm. I was really cool like that. And now we just have uh, those celebrity montage movies that we can watch by ourselves with a <laughs> bottle of wine. It's a terrible movie. Valentine's Day obviously is one of the largest days in the floral industry, seconded only. By Mother's Day. Mm-hmm. And just to give a hint of how we're going to turn this Valentine's bouquet into a withered handful of terrifying <laughs> facts, um, we know that Valentine's Day is, is really, really booming for the floral industry because women on the plantations in Africa and South America harvesting all those flowers have been working up to 60 hours a week in preparation for it. Yeah, some of the flower farms in South America triple the number of, of workers, most of them women, mm-hmm. leading up to Valentine's Day. Yeah. So, so, yeah, January, February, March, le- in le- you know, then leading up to Mother's Day. It's big business. Yeah, just, I mean, if that doesn't, doesn't warm your heart for this romantic occasion. 
But let's go back to a simpler time. <sighs> yes, the Victorian era, so simple and yet so repressed. Yes. And that's what leads us to floriography, which is the language of flowers. And in the Victorian era, uh, era, excuse me, it was really popular to uh, give flowers that had meaning. You know, you've all, I feel like everybody's heard about, you know, different flowers have different meanings. And, it, you know, you mentioned the different colors of carnations. It's the same thing for roses. Different rose colors have meaning. Everything from, from sympathy and remembrance to love and passion. Mm-hmm. Well, in the Victorian era, you know, emotions that couldn't be vocalized, you know, you couldn't just walk up to somebody and be like, I love you. I mean, maybe you could if you were like that, if you were very forward. Oh. <laughs> um, but people tended to give uh, their their uh, their crush or whatever um, a bouquet that meant something. And everything from the flowers themselves down to the way you handed the bouquet over meant something. So the way you tied the bow, the, the hand you used, and God forbid you handed the bouquet over upside down. That was just... What does that mean? That meant the opposite of what the flowers were supposed to mean. You give someone an opposite day bouquet? (laughs) Apparently apparently opposite day has been around a lot longer than I thought. I mean, talk about... Ooh, salt in the wound. I know, but okay, so, so every, you know, bouquets of flowers had a lot of meaning. And Beverly Seaton in her book, The Language of Flowers, A History, talks about how home manuals of the time illustrated very elaborate arrangements of cut flowers. So if you were highfalutin, if you were in high society, you were expected to have a lot of cut flowers in your home, but not just in vases. Not just going to the store and putting them in a glass of water. No, you were expected to have these elaborate arrangements because you were expected to either have the um, the help around your house to help you arrange them, or you were expected to take the time to do it yourself, to have these beautiful floral arrangements in your home. And this also wasn't just a product of Western domesticity. It reminds me of ikibana, which is the Japanese art of flower arranging, which is one of the typical skills uh, acquired by geishas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it was definitely uh, also seen as a uh, womanly pursuit. But I want to know what some flowers mean. If you were to give me <laughs> a special bouquet. If I were to give you an iris, it would mean that I had faith, hope, and wisdom in you, or <sighs> hoped to impart that to you. Carnations, which there's a lot of talk of carnations and sex in the city, and we'll go into it. But carnations symbolize love and fascination. And the, uh, it, there's a difference between a striped carnation and a solid one, but I, I, I can't recall that. M- one of my favorite flowers is the Gerbera daisy, and there's, you know, a million different colors. Those signify beauty, innocence, and cheerfulness. Yeah. You're uh, all three of those oh wrapped my- up in a daisy, Caroline. Oh, I'm blushing. Um, it's actually the Gerbera daisy is the fifth most popular flower in the world, in the whole world. And according to literature, it was discovered... Uh, in 1884 by a Scotsman in South Africa, even though I'm pretty sure other people had probably mm. seen the flower before. But yeah, the Gerbera daisy, as we know it today. And it's been bred and mixed, so that that's why we have so many colors. And orchids, rare and delicate beauty. Roses, of course, love and appreciation. And they range, like I said, red is love, pink admiration, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
So the floral industry traces all the way back to the 17th and 18th century, uh, starting off, not surprisingly, in the Netherlands with the development of greenhouses, and that practice then is taken to the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and one fun fact about uh, the, you know, the Netherlands, they're all known for their tulips, mm-hmm. and tulip comes from the Turkish word for durban. Really? Mm -hmm, Because it was initially um, taken from Central Asia and then across to to Holland. I do love a good tulip. And I don't mean turban, I mean tulip. Um, Yeah, the industry really grew in America with the advent of air transport and refrigerated trucks. So now you could take them much longer distances in a shorter amount of time. You didn't have to worry about them wilting because flowers pretty much have to be kept around 34 degrees, basically right above freezing when they're being transported. And in the mid-1960s, you know, we've got all the development of where where this industry is moving. And in the mid-1960s, the first carnation production started in Bogota, Colombia, uh, an area that offered great light and temperature, not to mention uh, low production costs compared with North America. Mm-hmm. Um, and large-scale U.S. producers are hard hit by all of the flowers that are being imported. And the floral industry, like so many other industries here in the States, has largely been outsourced. Mm -hmm. Um, California produces 76% of the domestic flowers grown here, but it's it's largely moved abroad. And um, one place that I did not realize was such a major hub of the international floral industry is Kenya. If you live in the EU, if you're listening right now in the UK, hello, talking directly to you. <laughs> if you have if you're looking right now at a vase of flowers, <laughs> British friends and Irish friends and Welsh ones too, chances are they came from Kenya. Now, if Caroline and I here in the States were looking at some uh, some flowers, some fresh cut well, not so fresh. Cut roses, they'd be coming from South America. Mm-hmm. But Kenya supplies 25% of all the flowers sold in the EU. Right. And there's a lot of talk about, as you can expect, there's a lot of talk about the environmental impact of importing all of these flowers. Um, but it's interesting that um, 12,000 Kenyan roses... That creates, uh, raising them, you know, whatever, growing them, that creates 13,200 pounds of carbon dioxide released from, from the growth of these roses. The equivalent number of Dutch roses releases 77,160 pounds of CO2 because they require all that artificial light, heat, and cooling over the 8 to 12 week growing period. So you don't have the hot sun that's constant in Kenya and in Colombia. So while you're you're importing all these roses and you you might think it's horrible for various reasons that we will get into here shortly, um it actually releases less uh CO2 into the atmosphere because they have to tinker with that actual growing environment less um which would outweigh then the cost I guess of transporting it, of producing them and and transporting mm-hmm. them over. Um, and this is coming from the Globe and Mail. 
in 2010, Canada imported $23.5 million worth of roses from Colombia, and almost a third of all cut flowers sold in Canada are imported from Colombia, including $14.1 million worth of carnations and $9.6 million worth of chrysanthemums. And the government has incentivized uh, this floral trade between Canada and Colombia because their free trade agreement that they recently signed removed a 10.5% tariff on roses. So it's even cheaper now for them to bring these flowers way up uh, the lands, <laughs> way up, way up the lands, way exactly. up yonder. But we we did the same thing in 1991. Um, the U.S. really was seeking to offset all the coca production in Colombia, and so we thought. I mean, I don't know what they thought, but they were like, hey, well, let's just have them make flowers instead. And so we suspended import duties on Colombian flowers, and this was in 1991. And just just uh, to show you what that did to flower imports in the U.S., in 1971, the U.S. produced 1.2 billion flowers and imported 100 million. And in 2003, that totally reversed. The U.S. was producing 200 million blooms and imported 2 billion. That's according to the Smithsonian, who took a big look at um, the flower trade. And now, according to the Society of American Florists, Colombia, not so surprisingly, is the number one import country of flowers to the United States, uh, comprising 65% of that trade, followed by Ecuador at 16% and the Netherlands at 6%. And then we actually get 4% of our flowers from from Canada. So hey. I wonder if Canada is is somehow getting <laughs> some flowers from Colombia and then marking them up and selling them to Are us. Are you saying that we're getting recycled south. Valentine's Day flowers? I don't know. Canada, what's behind this? What's going on? Canadians, <laughs> let us know. Um there is there is quite a process in all of this. Um it it involves chemicals, lots of transportation and a lot of labor. This is from the New Statesman, which describes the process and says that flowers are typically harvested, de-leafed, semi-dehydrated in refrigeration units, steeped in chemicals, packed in boxes, sometimes by machinery, and sent in refrigerated trucks to the airport. That's already that's already quite a lot that's of a stuff. Lot. Yeah, and then once they get to the supermarkets and florists where they're sold, they are usually chemically rehydrated. And in the weeks preceding St. Valentine's Day, St. Valentine's Day. (laughs) So proper. So proper, because that's how I am. Uh, And Mother's Day, women on the plantations in Africa and South America frequently work 60 hours a week, like you said. So that's all part of this huge... I, I have never... I'm so ignorant. I mean, I, I just haven't thought about it. You know, when you go to the grocery, I like to buy flowers at the grocery mm-hmm. store all the time. I never thought of this huge, long process. And so that's why I think it's important to talk about stuff like this, because something so simple as just buying a bunch of daisies while you're getting your grocery shopping done, there's a lot There's a lot behind that, just like there is with your food, of course. Well, I'm thinking about them going through the process of being semi-dehydrated and then chemically rehydrated. That blows my mind. Yeah, it's because they found this great growing location with all this sunlight and constant temperature, but then they have to get it to all the people who want to spend the money on it. Mm -hmm. And Americans and Europeans spend just millions of dollars every year on flowers, which are mostly just a feel-good purchase. It's not like we need it, but, you know, it's helping somebody. 
And that's the big question of is it is it really helping someone um, or are we because of this luxury purchase, are we destroying the environment and perpetuating low wage um, industries that treat women unfairly? And we will get to the bottom of this. Um, this is in Scientific American. Stuart Orr of the World Wildlife Fund International sums it up this way. He, and this is talking specifically about Kenya and, uh, Lake Naivasha, which is where a lot of those flower farms are located around. He says it's one of the most perfect places to grow flowers at a high altitude with plenty of water and sunshine. And flower farms employ people and generate income. Great. Mm-hmm. Excellent. But they're also big water and pesticide users. Right. And like you said, Kristen, Kenya supplies 25% of Europe's cut flowers. That's that's a very large chunk. And the best are sold to florists through Dutch auctions, and the not-so-perfect end up in European supermarkets. So, you know, same thing with me buying daisies at the grocery store. Gerbera daisies, to be exact. Yes, beauty and innocence. Um but at the Osirian farm on Lake Naivasha, uh, this is from Scientific American also, uh, roses, they talk about the, the environmental impact and what companies are, are seeking to do to offset some of this impact. Roses are now grown with geothermal waste heat to save energy, and no roses are raised within a third of a mile of the lake to prevent pesticide runoff from reaching it, but it hasn't always been like this. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some alarm bells that were raised in 2003, uh, which were largely attributed to a special report in the Guardian newspaper about worker conditions. Mm-hmm. And it was specifically conditions for female workers that make up a bulk of that labor force. Yeah, the uh, the Guardian made public concerns about chemical spraying, long working hours, and harassment of female workers who were working under male supervisors. And concerns remain over wages uh, today and whether the large flower companies are paying their fair share of taxes. Um, but let's look at 2009, uh, as far as the lake goes, that supplies all of the water to these flower farms in Kenya. Um, in 2009, a major drought shrank the size of the lake to levels they hadn't seen since the 1940s. But that was then followed by a major storm that washed sewage and possibly chemical residue from the farms into the lake. So here you, you're, they're using all this water, but then all of a sudden it's polluted, endangering all the ecosystems. And just to give listeners an idea of how much Lake Naivasha has been affected, not just because of the flower farming, but also because of that drought in 2009, it has receded over one mile, and Kenya is really trying to revitalize that ecosystem while sustaining these flower farms, which are so important. I want to say that the floral industry is the fifth largest in Kenya. It's very important for uh, for their economy. And depending on what flower farm you work at in Kenya, you, you might have a great situation. There are some farms that provide worker housing, education for their children, playgrounds, um, benefits. Uh, there are some that are transitioning more to permanent employment instead of using contract work. But that's obviously not true across the board. Um, and so there's still a lot of concerns about wages and fairness and um, female workers and the things that they have to deal with. But um, the environmental issues with the lake, it has led a couple of companies to start investing a lot of money in sustainability efforts. And there's uh, the company Flamingo 
Homegrown uh, does follow fair trade standards, uh, and the company says that it has slashed pesticide use, replaced contract positions with permanent ones, like I was just saying, and made efforts to actually train and promote women supervisors. But um, University of Leicester ecologist David Harper still has some concerns. And in February 2011, he basically said that the U.K.'s demand for fresh flowers was bleeding Lake Naivasha dry. And he's urging the supermarkets that are buying these flowers to take more responsibility by promoting policies that would help conserve the lake's ecosystem. So he's saying that the people who are selling you the flowers in your own country need to be more responsible. Right. People who are worried from the the more environmental standpoint can look out for flowers that are fair trade certified, or you can go local or mm-hmm. and buy more native plants that are native to your the ecosystems that you're living in. Obviously, you can buy plants from and flowers from local greenhouses and other things like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, let's let's turn now to another part of the world. And Colombia and Ecuador have a very similar situation to the one in Kenya, which is, like we said, the the environment, the growing situation is perfect. It's on a it's on a savanna. There's plenty of water and sunshine and constant temperatures. But we've got the same issues with pollution, pesticides, female workers, all of that. And I thought it was fascinating how the Colombian floral trade got started. Uh, this is coming from a report in the Smithsonian Magazine. And it all began because a guy named David Cheever wrote a term paper in grad school in 1967 suggesting that the savanna near Bogota was an ideal spot to grow flowers to sell to the U.S. because it had an excellent climate, the flowers would take off, and they could apply uh, assembly lines and modern shipping practices to to get things going. And boy, howdy, was David Cheever right. Yeah, he uh, he and three partners started Floor America, which used assembly lines and modern shipping. So right off the bat, they're like, we're going to make the Model T of flowers. And it really, it really took off. And now Colombia is the second largest exporter of cut flowers behind only the Netherlands. And it commands 70% of the U.S. market. Which, you know, or 65, depending on where you're getting your, where you're getting your numbers. So it's between 65 and 70. So basically a lot a of lot. flowers. <laughs> uh, and this employs more than 100,000 people working in the greenhouses. And a majority of folks who are trying to work there have been women, many of whom are single mothers. And this is where the, you know, this issue of, of what kind of female labor we are supporting when we're buying all of these Valentine's Day, Mother's Day flowers. Uh, because on the one hand, employment for single moms, that sounds great. It is needed. Economists have gone in and said, hey, this is a new uh, form of job opportunities that would not be there otherwise. Not necessarily a bad thing. But according to the International Labor Rights Fund, the typical South American flower picker um, is unmarried. She's got an elementary school education, and she has three or more children. And a lot of times she's not making enough money to really support herself and her family. Right. Women at the uh, at the farm, MG Consultores, were surveyed, and they found that most had previously worked on subsistence farms or as maids, jobs that paid lower wages than in the flower industry. But we have to ask, which is exactly the point you raised, are these the right kind of jobs? 
you know, it, it is wonderful that single mothers can have employment, but if they're being exposed to pesticides and being hunched over all day with the clippers, I mean, are we, again, it's, it's kind of a toss up. They're getting employed, they're getting paid, but it's putting their children and their own health at risk. So for those 60 hour weeks that they're working, um, in anticipation of Valentine's Day, not to be a total Valentine's Day downer, um, but these women are making minimum wage. They're working obviously long hours and a lot of them will suffer repetitive stress injuries with no treatment or time off. And if they do try to get any kind of treatment, they will be asked to not come off, come back. Um, and there are also stories, and this is from, um, that 2003 Guardian article that really raised alarm bells and things have gotten a little bit better. Um, but, you know, some women were saying that when inspections would happen to make sure working conditions were safe and equitable, the supervisors would ask certain people to stay home so things would, would look more above board. Right. Um, one of those things that's not looking above board is that as recently as the mid-90s, a Colombian sociologist found children as young as nine working in the greenhouses on Saturdays and children 11 and up working 46-hour work weeks. So uh, it's not only, um, you know, taking advantage of, of women, cheap labor from women, but also from children. Um, but talking about that exposure to chemicals, um, a 1981 survey of 9,000 flower workers found that they had been exposed to as many as 127 different chemicals, mostly fungicides and pesticides. And it, this is echoed, the problems that come from this have been echoed in several studies. Right. Um, you might be thinking, oh, a 1981 survey, uh, that's totally outdated. Well, here about, how about this? Uh, 2009 University of Mexico study finding that women working in the flower industry in Ecuador reported more pregnancy losses than among women outside the industry. And the researchers linked that to the need for an evaluation of the reproductive health effects of employment in that specific industry linked to pesticide use. Right. Yeah, if you're going to have this population doing this work, we should definitely take a look at how to make it safer. Mm-hmm. Um, a 2006 study of female flower workers in Ecuador, uh, this was study, this study was published in Pediatrics, found that a pregnant woman's exposure to pesticides was associated with a child's neurological impairment and higher blood pressure later in life. And of course, we know that higher blood pressure, can, you know, if, if, if it stays, it can eventually lead to cardiovascular problems. And in addition to uh, these kind of pesticide exposures and those repetitive stress injuries, there were, according to the Smithsonian Magazine, also a lot of reports of sexual harassment by male bosses. Um, but again, these are these are issues that a lot of companies have tried to go in and rectify, but largely because watchdog groups have been formed to pay attention to these kind of working conditions. Right. And I mean, as far as creating better work environments, you know, we talked about several of the companies in Kenya that are really seeking to uh, be sustainable, to help their workers and the workers' families. Um, according to that Smithsonian article, the flower industry in Colombia created Flor Verde, a voluntary certification program that requires participating farms to meet targets for sustainable water use and follow internationally recognized safety guidelines 
for chemical applications. So there are people really trying to um, improve the quality of their workers' lives. And going back to the situation in Kenya, uh, The Economist magazine was talking about more the, the the importance of the floral industry in kind of an unstable economy over there. And they report that the average monthly salary of $80 plus benefits is actually considered a good wage. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that's why um, it was... It was challenging to weigh the pros and the cons of what's going on in this industry because whenever we trace back a lot of the products that we take for granted, these simple luxuries Mm -hmm. like a bouquet of flowers, a lot of times it does trace back to people um, not earning very much money. Uh, and, and that can be, I don't know, it's, it's, it's hard to, to justify in your mind because you can contextualize it and say, well, for those, for those Kenyan women, that $80 a month is really great, but should we be pushing for somehow more for them? Yeah. Exactly. I don't know. Higher wages, better safety precautions. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, taking more precautions, precautions, excuse me, for pregnant women also. Right. And I think that's why it's, heartening to see that organizations like fair trade are going in they are um you know you can actually find those kind of certified bouquets or of course if you want to you can always go local and native yeah buy buy your your lovey-dovey person uh, a potted plant yeah because the thing is at the end of the day People like people who buy flowers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's now, true. Now, granted, this study at Rutgers University in 2006 was funded by the Society of American Florists. <laughs> okay. Uh, but they did conclude that people perceive others based on the types of gifts they give and flower givers rose straight to the top. We think of people who give flowers as making the best impression, and they are considered more likable, friendly, and emotionally intelligent. I love getting flowers. Right. But it's funny because uh, apparently a lot of people out there think that guys need help in this arena because there are several, everything from flower websites, from from flower companies themselves, over to that website, The Art of Manliness, that Mm -hmm. we cited before, has told, you know, guys, you you really need to man up and buy some flowers for your lady. But don't just buy carnations. You better buy some lilies. Yeah, and they suggest, they do, they, they go over the meaning of different flowers. And uh, I think the, it was the art of manliness that suggested buying your lady friend one of those manuals about the meaning of, the Victorian manuals on the meaning of flowers, mm-hmm. making sure that you have the same one because they weren't all the same. So you don't want to fend her and try to say that, you know, like, oh, I think you're really dumb. But, you know, like, I don't know what flower would symbolize dumbness. And he hands it to her upside down. And, oh, God, and the bow is tied the wrong way. You know, just take take the pressure off and get her a chia pet. Oh, God. No, <laughs> nothing says I love uh, you like a bearded, potted plant. <laughs> exactly. That's what I say all the time. I have that knitted on a pillow. In fact. <laughs> Keep the expectations low, ladies. Right. So, yeah, I want to know who out there is getting flowers for someone on Valentine's Day. And if you've thought at all about the, the big line of places that it has been well i'm wondering now too if we're accidentally dissuading people from giving flowers to their beloved well maybe they'll go to a local florist yeah or or maybe they'll make their own 
bouquet out of construction paper. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Let's combine the, the Martha Stewart podcast with this one. <laughs> All you need is some dried macaroni. And, <laughs> and that's a good thing. So hopefully you thought this podcast was a good thing. Not to be a total downer on Valentine's Day Eve. Either way, let us know your thoughts. Send us a Valentine. How about? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know. Uh, you can't send me flowers, I, I guess, because that might take too long. But you can send us an e-card. Ooh, momstuff at discovery.com. Draw us a flower in MS Paint. <laughs> Ooh, I, I like that. Very high tech. You can send it to momstuff at discovery.com. I repeat, momstuff at discovery.com. I will be awaiting your MS Paint roses. Yes, and we would like a guide of what each MS Paint flower you have drawn means. Yes. Hopefully it is all love and endearment. Yeah, don't be mean or obscene. Yeah, at least wait until after Valentine's Day. (laughs) So I've got an email here to read from Tina, and this is in response to our episode on gender differences in exercise. And Tina is a soccer player, an avid soccer player, and she brought up something that we came across in our research for that podcast, but did not end up mentioning in that episode. She writes... I can speak for the sport I know best, which is soccer, and after recently tearing my ACL and having to undergo surgical reconstruction, I learned a lot about how being a lady played into my injury. My surgeon told me that women are actually up to eight times more likely to tear their ACL in sport because of our biomechanics and weight distribution. Men tend to have stronger upper bodies, while women tend to carry their weight in the hip and thigh region. And this means that when a woman pivots or twists on her feet during a sport, there is a lot more torque in the ligaments on the knee. This extra tension is what causes female soccer players to have more ligament injuries, and I guess I'm a living example of this. Because of this fact, my physiotherapist has told me that most female varsity teams at my university undergo some form of ACL injury prevention training sessions to build up certain stabilizing muscles in their legs to counteract the torque on their ligaments. Hmm. Ladies got torque. (laughs) Doesn't sound so bad. Put that on a pillow. (laughs) Uh, this this is from Jana. She, the subject line, I'll let it speak for itself, says, Gem, gender, pandemonium. She says, I'm a student at Memorial University in Newfoundland, Canada, and we've had a bit of crisis on our hands up here. As students, we all have access to the gym on campus, which has a specific free weights room that is often crowded by many guys. Well, a decision was made by the gym to promote more females to get into this kind of muscle-toning workout, and so the gym began to offer female-only hours on non-peak times. Oh, sure, non-peak times. Well, it has been an uproar, she says. I thought it was funny and even laugh loudly when you said that boys are more upset when they miss their workouts because it has been crazy. Guys have written our campus newspaper, started a Facebook group in protest, calling this an act of reverse sexism. Now, mind you, they still have 92 hours a week to have access to the room. I think they are being kind of silly, but each to their own, I guess. I guess, Jenna. Yeah, I asked Jenna to keep us informed to see whether or not the school caves yeah. to the gender, gym gender pandemonium. <laughs> pandemonium. Gym jamboree. <laughs> pandemonium. I just picture all these people running around the gym with their hands in the air like, ah. Yeah, I'm thinking of a dance marathon now. <laughs> So on that note, 
Uh, again, our email address is momstuff at discovery.com if you have a letter or valentine to send our way. Or you can send us a valentine up on the Facebooks. We'd like that. Why don't you send us a valentine by liking us? That would be the best valentine's present you could possibly give to me and Caroline. We would love you for that. And you can also follow us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. And you can check out the blog during the week. It is at HowStuffWorks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?